baptism? What does it mean in the life of a church? What does it signify? What is the person who's getting baptized? What is it that they're declaring? And why is this important and integral in the life of the church? So let's think about baptism. Let's think about you. Let's think about me. Let's think about each one of us. And let's think about the church and why this is integral in the life of the church. And so since we have five people getting baptized next week and there'll be more time, you, you know that I tend not to be, uh, uh, I tend to be long-winded. I tend to use a few more minutes than I actually have. And with five people getting baptized next week, it's like I can't teach and baptize all in one week. So we're going to talk about baptism this week. And then you'll actually get to see it visibly demonstrated next week. Let's think about these things together. So I brought a couple of illustrations with me, a couple of things that I want you to think about that will help us understand what's taking place in baptism, all right? Are you ready to see what you've, how many of you have been wondering what's under the tablecloth through the service as we've been going? A few of you, okay. Here we go. I brought two things with me as we think about baptism this morning. The first is a megaphone, right? Megaphones are used for making loud public announcements. If there's instructions I need to get out, I could use this, and you'd be able to hear me. The other thing I brought, and I assume you will appreciate this, there we go, okay? A few people, right? Okay. So, what does a jersey have to do with baptism, and what does a megaphone have to do with baptism? How are these things connected? We'll come to each of these, and, I, and they play integral pieces. It will help illustrate what's taking place in baptism. There's two things that are taking place in baptism. Uh, there's two important announcements that are being made. One is an announcement that the believer is making. Okay? What is the believer saying through baptism, the person who's being immersed in the water? There's something significant that they're proclaiming. And then a church. If the church is the one that baptizes, what is the church saying? There's something that the church is declaring about the person who's being baptized. So how do these two things relate to each other? The megaphone, the jersey will begin to come into play, and you'll understand how that's illustrating a little bit. By the way, the Bible doesn't talk about megaphones and jerseys. This is just an illustration to help us be able to think about baptism as we go through this together. Um, as, as we teach on baptism this morning, there's a few things that I want you to keep in mind. Uh, in the amount of time I have, uh, I, there's simply a lot of things about baptism we won't be able to cover. So I'm going to make some assumptions, and I'm just going to tell you what those assumptions are, even though through the course of the morning, won't be able to prove all of them through Scripture. Number one, the first assumption that we're making is that baptism, according to the New Testament, it's always shown where believers have made a profession of faith, and after they've made that profession of faith, they're baptized. So by that, we're saying that, as, uh, that we wouldn't baptize infants. Now, there's two different ways that churches baptize infants. One, uh, in the idea of baptismal regeneration, that's the idea that, that actually sprinkling the infant has some saving ability, that baptism, whether, whether it's an infant or adult, there's some that would teach baptismal regeneration that, that thereby someone is saved through that actual act. So we're we're not aligning ourselves with that. But then there would be others who would baptize an infant, and they're not ascribing to it saving properties. They're simply saying that this is a demonstration of a, of a future potential faith, that potentially this person will bring them into the covenant community, and potentially they will someday be saved. So note that, I'm not going to take the time to walk through all that, but we're saying, we're assuming baptism is by those who have made a profession of faith after conversion, they are publicly professing their faith, and so therefore, it's those who are already believers. We're making the assumption that immersion into water is the mode of baptism, that rather than sprinkling, that the very word means to be immersed, or to be plunged, or to be dunked, and many of the examples, all of the examples of the New Testament is by a large body of water where the person was immersed and dunked. That's what the word means. I'm not going to take the time to prove it, but we're going to just assume that. 
number three, there's some that talk about baptism, uh, not necessarily water baptism, but you'll hear the phrase baptism of the Spirit, and this would be those in charismatic or Pentecostal churches that would teach a second work, that after conversion, there's a baptism of the Spirit, whereby you are filled with the Spirit, and perhaps probably also accompanied by the gift of tongues, and that that's the baptism you need to be seeking, praying for, longing for, and so we're not aligning ourselves with that. We're saying that we are, we are saying baptism of the Spirit, and water baptism have some unique and similar properties that we need to understand how they relate to one another, but we're not saying baptism of the Holy Spirit in any sense is a second work that needs to be in the life of a believer. So, with all of that being said, let me explain a few things, okay? I realize that in a sermon of this length, we won't be able to get all of our questions answered. If you're here this morning and you haven't been baptized the way that we do baptism, what's, what's our attitude in talking about this this morning? There's not a spotlight on you, okay? We're not going to interrogate you afterwards and say, if you come back, you have to be willing to get baptized. That's not the attitude of how we're talking about this. We, we recognize that believers through the centuries have disagreed with this, and so we want to be careful. Some of the differences I just described are very, very important. We want to be careful to do theological triage and say, okay, what's, what's first order primary doctrine? The idea of baptismal regeneration, that baptism somehow saves, that's very, very serious, very, very important. Out, if, if churches that teach that are outside the bounds of orthodox correct gospel teaching. And so we want to take that very, very seriously. Some of the other things that I mentioned, we recognize there, there may be believers who are faithful to the scriptures who disagree. There's probably not enough agreement to exist together in the same church, uh, to partner together in the planting of churches, so to speak. But we still believe the gospel, right? We'll still participate for all of eternity in the same heaven. So we want to be careful with our attitude there of how we propose that. I also want to just acknowledge to you that if you grew up in a church that does baptism differently than we do. I don't expect that one sermon on baptism is like going to make the light bulb go off and wow, you're going to be changed instantly after this. Realize that it may take years in the process of God working into your heart, whether it's through needing better teaching, whether it's through simply having the opportunity. We recognize that even as a church, we haven't done a baptism for a couple of years through getting some structures into place that we feel are important to go along with baptism. So just recognize that we're, we, we want to talk about this with humility, with strong conviction, certainly, but there's humility to understand. We're, we're not going to start checking your card at the door when you come back next week. But we do think baptism is so important that we want to talk about it, and we want to let you know what the truth is. Some of you may have questions afterwards, and for that reason, we don't typically do this. In fact, I haven't done this ever since I've been here, but when the service is over, we'll dismiss everybody like usual, and just about three minutes after the service, I'll be right down front. If you would like to do a Q&A on baptism, questions you heard me say in the service, maybe you've got questions about what baptism means for your kids, anything to do with baptism or the gospel or conversion, just gather in these first few pews. If we had a two-minute conversation, great. If we had a 20-minute conversation, great. If you have a question to ask, come on down. Maybe somebody else will ask the question you have and would love to just be able to talk with you about more particulars that I'm not going to be able to cover this morning. So I think that baptism, for all the things that I just covered in the assumptions that I made, that one of the really encouraging things is that when we as churches focus on what baptism means positively, I took a little bit of time to say this isn't what it means, but that's not where I want the emphasis of our message to be. I want to focus on, in the positive sense, what does baptism mean? A man named Wayne Grudem says it this way, what then is the positive meaning of baptism? In all the discussion over the mode of baptism and the disputes over its meaning, it is easy for Christians to lose sight of the significance and beauty of baptism and to disregard the tremendous blessing that accompanies the ceremony.
If churches would teach these truths more clearly, baptisms would be the occasion of much more blessing in the church. I want us as a church to be encouraged and to celebrate and to rejoice at who God is and what he has done in the life of the individuals that we baptize next week. And I don't want to wait two years for our next baptism. In fact, I know that there's others who are ready and in, in the near future will be baptized as well. And I want us as a church to realize how integral this is uh, to, to the life of the church and that we want to be celebrating who God is and what he's doing to bring people into his church. So let's think about this. What does baptism mean? What is it that we're professing? Again, there's two statements that are being made. One, the believer is making a statement. And two, the church is making a statement in baptism. And we need to understand both parts. So let's start with the believer. What is it that the believer is saying in baptism? Next week, as we watch these five individuals go through the baptismal waters, what is it they're professing? What is it that they believe? What is it that they are saying about who God is? So if you're still in Acts, Acts chapter 2, and let's come back and let me explain just a little bit of what is taking place. Let, verse 36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I wasn't fair to you this morning in picking the scripture passage. I read to you the last verse, the concluding verse of Peter's sermon that started back at verse 14. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching. There's a crowd that has gathered. This is right after Pentecost, which is to say, at this point, Christ has ascended back into heaven. Believers are still gathered in Jerusalem shortly after his ascension. Within a matter of weeks, he told them to stay and to wait, and that the, the Holy Spirit would be poured out, that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You remember us talking about this just a little bit as we went through the Gospel of John and how the Holy Spirit would be a helper to the church. So at Pentecost, then, what happens? It, it says that little flames of fire as tongues descended on the individuals and they began to hear and speak. They began to speak and others would hear them in their own language, which massively spread the gospel. If you think about it, that there were people who were gathered in Jerusalem and from their own regions, their own countries, and they heard the gospel and believed in Jesus. And now through this gift of languages, they were able to speak in Languages that other people heard and then dispersed, which started the church and spread the gospel. Now there's people gathered around listening to that, and they they see the dissension of the Holy Spirit. They they hear the people talking, the rejoicing, the commotion that would have been going on. And their thought is, if you were there that day, some of the skeptical ones in the crowd say, wow, it's a little early in the morning to be breaking open the bottle. That's what they say if you go back and read through. Like, uh, are they drunk? This, what is going on? And Peter stands up and starts shouting. saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Guys, listen, here's a sermon. You need to understand what's going on. He says, they're not drunk. It's still early in the morning. Joel, the prophet, talked about something like this. He prophesied that in the last days something like this would happen. And by the way, David even knew that one day uh, one of his descendants would rise and would be the king. He'd be the Messiah. He'd be the Redeemer. This was Jesus that some of you in this crowd just a few weeks ago were responsible for calling for his crucifixion. So when you read verse 36 with all of that in mind and you look at verse 36 and Peter says, by the way, Jesus is God and you crucified him, that's kind of like mic drop, right? It's kind of like he, he, he throws down the hammer and he says, you're, you're all responsible. So what happens? Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
Right? They were under conviction. They were like, I just heard the gospel preached. I just understood who Jesus was. Some of them certainly were still skeptical, but others said, yes, I, I believe I'm in. I, I, that's what I want. I'm convicted. I want to turn to Christ for salvation. So how were they supposed to do that? What did it mean for them to repent and be baptized? When you think about this, in light of everything that I just said, for them to repent and be baptized was for them to go public with their faith. It was for them to step out of the crowd, those who were still mocking and saying, what, are they drunk already? They were to separate themselves from the mockers and say, no, I, I sign up. I believe. This is, this is me. I want to repent and be baptized. And so it was a way for them to publicly proclaim their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Baptism was a way for them to make a public announcement, to pick up the megaphone and say, I'm on Team Jesus. I believe. Uh, I'm identifying with the truths of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And so next week, as we have several who go through the waters of baptism, they're saying, this is true of me. I, I have placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I want everyone to know I'm not ashamed. I'm picking up the megaphone and telling Shawnee Baptist Church and anyone else who's here this week, next week, this is what team I'm on. This is, this is the truth of the gospel. This is who I am. This is the truth that I understand about who Jesus Christ is. And that's why when they came under conviction and they asked Peter, well, what are we supposed to do? He says, repent and be baptized. Now let's talk about those two things because he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they had just watched the Holy Spirit pour himself out on believers and in this early fresh stages of the church, they too then would experience this same new covenant truth of salvation in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the receiving of the Spirit if they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that the, the words that the Holy Spirit chose to record for us in Peter's response was repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you grew up in a church similar to I did, uh, similar as, as myself, the idea of repenting for the forgiveness of sins, that makes a little more sense. We still struggle with it, to be honest, because remember, we, we, we typically like to say, well, I thought you had to believe. I thought you just had to believe on the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We've walked through this as a church several months ago, and in the church foundations class, we walk the class through and say, there are a number of places in scripture, verses you could turn to, where it looks as if repentance alone is what is necessary for salvation. And yet, there's a whole other handful of scriptures that make it obvious that belief is what is necessary for salvation. That faith is what is necessary for salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you are saved through faith. We understand that it's our belief or our faith in the finished work of Christ that saves us. That alone is what provides salvation. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Inseparable graces is the way that many Christian statements of faith through the years have said that. That, that it's two sides of the same coin. You don't have one without the other, right? If you have repentance, it's faith which enables true repentance. If you say you have faith but never get to repentance, then whatever belief you might say you have isn't actual faith because the two always come together. So that's why you see repentance. There's a lot of scriptural support to that, and we've walked through that together as a church. But baptize. Why be baptized? for the forgiveness of sins. Does something about going through the waters 
actually save people? Is that how we get our sins washed away? And yet, this isn't the only place that Scripture seems to talk this way and that would actually cause us to say, wait a minute, hold on, what is going on? I've got a bunch of Scriptures that I want you to see. Here Peter preached his sermon. I want you to see the way he wrote it in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 says it this way. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you should be saying, wait a minute, what? Baptism now saves you? Like, shouldn't that say baptism doesn't save you? We, we don't believe baptism saves you. Why? was Peter choosing the word baptism to talk about conversion, to talk about salvation, to talk about regeneration. Peter's not the only one who does this. I want you to see a bunch of verses from the Apostle Paul. Paul writes the same way. When we get to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6, here's the way that Paul says it. We've got these verses for you on the screen. We'll be flipping to many places this morning, so let me just read some of them. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. As I read through these scriptures, all of them are talking about some of the benefits of conversion, some of the things that are being symbolized through baptism. Here especially, the union with Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, the being united with him, the desire to walk in newness of life, and Paul uses the word baptism to signify all of that. Keep going to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 25 through 27, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Faith, we're comfortable with that concept for conversion. We know what it means to believe for salvation and conversion. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now Paul seems to be not looking at baptism and faith as two separate things. It seems to be as if he's using them interchangeably, both baptism and faith. Then keep going to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Talking about some of the differences between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Between circumcision for the Israelites and how it is that we are brought into the New Covenant family through a relationship with Jesus Christ. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So here, baptism is talking about being raised with Christ. So on the face of it, all of these passages and what Paul is talking about do not seem to be speaking of baptism as something that comes separate from conversion, but it seems to be talking as if uh, baptism and conversion, it's speaking of baptism as something that comes part and parcel together with conversion. So why? Why would the New Testament authors write this way if we firmly believe that baptism doesn't save? It's only faith through the finished work of Jesus Christ that saves. Well, think about what's taking place at baptism. What happens next week when these individuals go through the baptismal waters? What is it that we believe? We don't believe that these people are being saved. We believe that baptism is an outward demonstration, a visible reality, it's a visible demonstration of an inward reality. 
Baptism is proclaiming to all and visualizing something that has already happened on the inside. What is happening? There's a declaration of both faith and repentance. Baptism also signifies or shows there's a forgiveness of sins and the cleansing that even come through washing. There's the sign of the new life in Christ, right? When the person goes is sharing their testimony, they are dry, they go under the water, they come up completely soaked. It's as if they are a new creation. There's this desire to walk in newness of life. There's a symbolized sign of a new union with Christ, that they are unified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And baptism symbolizes that, that they go under the water, they're alive, they go under the water, they're buried with Christ, they come up out of the water, a new creation, and baptism symbolizes all of that. It's also a sign of a receiving of the Holy Spirit, that one of the things at conversion that happens is a gift of the Spirit. And so often through the book of Acts, you see how this is spelled out in the church, that baptism accompanies the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we, we see all of these things tied together. And so here's, here's what's happening. The whole list of scriptures I read through, here's why that's difficult for us as Baptists. We are correct that baptism does not save. It's faith and repentance in the finished work of Jesus Christ. However, our, our, excuse me, our cultural practice in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries has been such that baptism is separated sometimes by a significant number of months and years from conversion, and so we think of baptism as something that happens much later and separate from conversion. But that's not the way the New Testament speaks of these things. And why? Remember, put yourself there in Acts chapter 2. If you heard Peter's sermon... How is it that you're, if you're ready to believe, how do you make that known, right? You don't walk an aisle. You don't raise your hand. You, there's, the, the way that you publicly make it known and pick up your megaphone and say, I'm a believer, is you go through the baptismal waters. And that's why the New Testament has some, the, the visual sign of baptism is this outward display that you can hang your hat and say, if you want to look at conversion, if you want a tangible evidence of it, if you want an outward picture of an inward reality, it's baptism. And that's, that's like the one word that, that Paul is writing back and referring to when he's really speaking to everything that happens at conversion. He's saying, listen, this is, you were baptized. You were there that day. And so baptism becomes this outward public sign that we're truly and genuinely converted. You have this quote in your bulletin by Bobby Jamison in his book, Going Public. I thoroughly enjoyed this book on baptism. It's a deep... It's a, it's a bit of an academic read, so it's not nighttime bed, bedside reading type thing. Um, but many of the thoughts you're hearing today come shaped out of this book and a class that I took on the church with a man named Jonathan Lehman. So I appreciate their thinking and the way that it has shaped my understanding of baptism. But here's the quote that they said. Bobby Jamison says, If baptism is where faith goes public, then baptism is where you can see faith. Baptism renders faith visible. It gives the believer, the church, and the world something to look at. That's why so often the New Testament writers look back and say, hey, th that baptism, remember? You remember everything that signified? You remember that, what, what that meant when you gave your life to Jesus Christ? This is the truth of what baptism means. And so what the believers are standing up and saying next week, we, we believe they've already been saved. 
they're going to share with you their testimony of salvation. These are, the purpose, these are the circumstances, people, and events that God used to bring me to faith in Jesus Christ. And now in an outward public proclamation, I want to let you all know something that has inwardly happened in my own life. Baptism is not what saves them. And therefore, that's why we believe then that only believers who after, after they've trusted in Christ can profess faith in Christ, that can be eligible for this ordinance of baptism. It doesn't save them. It's simply how they show to everyone that they have been saved. Back in May, I had the chance to go to Portugal and visit our missionaries, Craig and Megan Beatty. And uh, I, when I got to the airport in Lisbon, got off the plane, had to go to customs or something like that, and there's a guy in a booth, and he needed paperwork from all of us, right? Now, I had to prove that I was a United States citizen by handing him my passport. And inside it has my information, and I said, this, this is how I... What I did not say to him, I didn't take the time to say, listen, my name's Aaron Hart, you don't need to see this. Uh, I'm a United States citizen because I was born in Denver, Colorado, to a man named Wayne Hart, and his wife was Donna Hart, and they're United States citizen. It's in my blood, my DNA, I'm a United States citizen. I didn't take the time to explain that. That's truly what makes me a United States citizen, right? I simply prove it to the world with my passport. This doesn't make me a United States citizen. It's simply just the way I can show others. In a similar way, all analogies break down, baptism doesn't save, but it does become a batch of belonging whereby we can show to the world, I I'm in. Uh, this is who I believe. This is uh, uh, the, the outward visible demonstration of an inward reality. And so that's what the believer is signifying and saying when it comes to baptism. That's the megaphone. That's what the believer is saying in baptism. Now let's come to the jersey. What is it that the church is saying in baptism? We tend to think, we tend to think that baptism is a personal decision, right? My personal chance to stand up and proclaim that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. We tend to do the same thing even with communion, a personal reflection of who Jesus Christ is. In fact, some of you may be thinking, I don't need to get baptized. That's a personal thing between me and Jesus Christ. He's my Savior, and that's a personal decision. Nobody needs me to make it public, right? Well, it's true that your relationship with Jesus Christ is personal, but it's never private. There's a difference between being personal and private. And over and over throughout Scripture, we are commanded to be public witnesses, public testimonies, and if we're truly converted, we will associate with others who are truly converted and bind ourselves together to them in that commitment. So when we watch the people get baptized next Sunday, it's not just their personal testimony that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. We as a church are also saying, yes, we're bringing them in. We recognize that they're a believer in Jesus Christ. We affirm, we're not making them Christian. We're simply affirming that we believe, based on their profession of faith in Jesus Christ, that they are also on Team Jesus, and we're going to live life together here at Shawnee Baptist Church. Why do we say that? Why are we allowed to make that declaration as a church? Next Sunday, when I stand up in those waters, Lord willing, and get the opportunity to baptize, why? Who authorizes me to do that? Is it just because I'm a pastor at Shawnee Baptist Church that I get the chance to do that? Let's say that, that you, your family and my family and a few other Christian families are, are out on a camping trip and we decide that we would like, that, like somebody wants to profess faith in Christ. There's hikers walking by and they say, hey, you're Christians, I'm a Christian. Would you baptize me? Like, do I have the authority? I'm a pastor at Shawnee Baptist Church. Can I just baptize anywhere? Why 
Do we as a church have the ability to say, yes, we affirm your testimony of salvation and faith in Jesus Christ? If you look now, I've got a few scriptures we're going to go through starting in Matthew 28, and you're very familiar with these scriptures. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why is baptism tied up in an integral way to the very commission that Jesus left his disciples with in the building up of the church? This is where our authority as a church, where Jesus himself authorizes us to make disciples, baptism is an integral part of that. Why? How do we see that fleshed out, especially in the Gospel of Matthew? I've briefly tried to walk through this one other time on a Sunday morning. In depth, we walk through it in the Church Foundations class. I'm going to be running short on time, so let me do it very briefly. We'll go back to Matthew chapter 16, and I've got the scriptures here for you, but this is where Peter makes his proclamation of who Jesus Christ is. This is where we get the authority as a church to baptize people and what it means to include people into the church by implication then membership follows baptism now when jesus came into the district of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say that the son of man is some say john the baptist others say elijah others jeremiah one of the prophets so there's all these ideas of who jesus is there's all these professions of who jesus is he said to them but who do you say that i am and then coming to verse 16 simon peter replies you are the christ the son of the living god so if you understand what what Simon professes right there, what Peter says. This is a great Christological confession that he believes Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus answers him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the same confession that Peter makes of who Jesus is, is the same profession then that other believers are added to the church based upon that same profession that we believe this is who Jesus is, and this is how Christ is going to build his church. And then in verse 19, I, give you, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that's confusing language, but what Jesus is delegating to Peter, and then by implication, all others who make the same confession that Peter makes, is this ability to speak with heaven's authority, to bind and loose, and to say these are true professors making a correct profession of who Jesus Christ is. There's the ability to judge on both a who and the what of the gospel. Now, this becomes more clear then in Matthew chapter 18. What does it mean to bind and loose? You see some of it played out here in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We're very familiar, we hear this a lot, in how we resolve conflict within the church. There's steps and process that you need to go through in... in uh, uh, letting someone know that they've sinned against you when someone who makes a profession of faith is no longer walking in accordance with that profession. And hopefully, restoration happens quickly, quietly, even just between the two of you. In that sense, church discipline has happened right then. We tend to only think of church discipline as big public when it's brought before the church, but right here, church discipline happens when one brother loves a brother enough to come and say, listen, you've offended me, and there's reconciliation. There's restoration, and that's the beautiful truth. So then you go on to verse 17. If he refuses to 
listen, tell it to the church. So the church is the highest level of authority. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So finally it could get to the point where someone would need to be set outside the church, for a church to remove its affirmation, to say, you know what, um, we're, not, we're not removing your salvation. We're just saying we can no longer in good conscience. You're, you're, the lifestyle of this professor no longer matches the truth of their profession, and they set them outside the bounds of the church. So they, then he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We're meant to connect Matthew 18 and Matthew 16. The binding and loosing authority, the keys of the kingdom. How does the church exercise those keys? It's when they bring people into membership and when, if necessary, they set them outside of them, church membership and loose them and set them outside of church membership. Then going on to verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. We've heard that verse before. It's not set in the context of where two or three people are gathered together having a prayer meeting. There's a special presence of Jesus. It's set in the context of where does the church have the authority to bring people into membership, to, to baptize them, and if necessary, to set them on the outside. They get that authority when two or three people agree in the name of Jesus. Who do you believe Jesus is? Why have we as Shawnee Baptist Church gathered together as a church? Because we believe in the foundational apostolic truths of the gospel that this is who Jesus Christ is. This is our profession of faith. So when we come back to Matthew chapter 28 then, you see it. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. That's what Jesus says. That's what he proclaims. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. It's very important that we're gathered together in the name of Jesus, that we baptize in the name of Jesus. Who authorizes us to do this? It's Jesus himself. And that's why we go through this together as a church. We bring people into the church through baptism, we regularly gather back around the Lord's Supper and we say, these are the truths of the gospel that we believe. That Christ's body was broken for me, that his blood was shed for me, and this is the truth that we commit ourselves to. We unite ourselves to these truths around the gospel, and that's the thing that brings us great encouragement. Baptism takes one person and binds them to many in the body. The Lord's Supper takes the many people and reunites them as one that there's no division in the body. And that's what we celebrate the next week as we watch these people share their testimony of faith as they come into the church and we, we're celebrating the truth of the gospel and the truth of baptism, the fact that yes, they truly are on team Jesus and they want everyone to know that. Now, I know that because baptism hasn't been taught on clearly in different churches, there'd be many people that are different places of accepting this. That's why I want to take time just to be able to answer questions further, continue to teach on this through the years. And you realize that we're not, we're not getting to the point where we're going to start checking cards at the doors, you know, and turn you away if you're not baptism. But we do believe it's really important. We don't want to just let it slide by the wayside because there's so much disagreement in churches. You see, what we are doing next week, these five individuals, we already believe they're Christians. They're already on the team, so to speak. We're simply just saying, now you belong. You, you're, you're on the team. We recognize that. We, in fact, we're going to commit to caring for you. You're committing to the body, and we're going to commit to caring for you. Could you imagine if, if I had a contract to play for the Philadelphia Eagles, and I walked up to Doug Peterson one day. I said, hey, coach, 
Jeffrey Lurie, me and him met for coffee last night. I'm on the team. I signed the contract. Uh, I'm allowed to play. And he would say, great, here's your jersey. Go get on the field. Could you imagine if I said, yeah, you know what? Uh, I don't really, I'm not sure I need the jersey. I just kind of want to play a few games. Uh, I'm on the team. Trust me, Jeff says I am, right? What would Doug Peterson say? He'd say, great, and Jeff made sure that I make sure you wear a jersey, right? That's kind of the way it would work. Um, in, in, in this sense, what, what does all of this mean about baptism? There's this great truth that, that you come into the family of God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? But it's never private. It's never just between you and God alone, right? And though, though you can come to Jesus Christ through this personal moment of asking Jesus Christ to save you, it becomes a very public thing when you bind and commit yourself to the body and saying, yes, I'm, I'm on the team. So with all this together, how do we as a church respond? There was one more thing that I wanted to bring, and for sake of time, I didn't bring it because I wasn't sure if I had one, but I also didn't want to be sacrilegious, I, but I'll say it anyways. I wanted a party hat and a kazoo, right? <laughs> like, this is something to celebrate, right? Next week, if you can, by at all chance, don't miss next week. Like, this is where we celebrate. This is where we say, wow, look at this person. Look how God has worked in their heart. We, we celebrate that. We affirm that. They're committing themselves to us. We're wrapping our arms around them and saying, listen, we're going to live life together as a church right here in Shawnee Baptist, and we're going to live out the Christian life. And this is something to rejoice. Next week, I want to look at the parable of the lost sheep and how much rejoicing in heaven there is over the sinners who repent and come to Christ. And we're just going to, as a church, celebrate that God has worked in the lives of these individuals and what he has done. If you're here this morning and would like to talk more about the gospel or baptism, anything I brought up in the message, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little more afterwards. That'd be great. Father, we come to you and we're really grateful for who you are as God. Really grateful for the hope of the gospel and the fact that you have worked to make yourself known to us through the person of your son, Lord, I thank you for those that are here that have trusted in Christ for salvation. Lord, I thank you for these that you've given to us next week that want to publicly profess that. May we as a church just celebrate, wrap our arms around them, help them live the Christian life. Lord, work in the hearts of others who are contemplating what all of this means. Maybe they're deciding whether or not they want to be a Christian. Maybe they're deciding whether or not they want to get baptized. Maybe they're trying to understand ways you've worked in their lives through the years. Father, by your Spirit, would you show them truth from your Word and encourage them in the days, in the hours, the days, and the weeks to come. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.